HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit Michter's.com to find out how their taste-is-everything-cost-be-damned attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and we have a really exciting show for you today. Uh, We have the proprietors of the Dead Rabbit Cocktail Bar here in uh, downtown uh, Manhattan, um, down in the Financial District. uh, Dead Rabbit named uh, Best Cocktail Bar in the World, and uh, very proud that that honor is bestowed to a bar here in uh, New York, um, but very, uh, I think very appropriately so by um, two uh, folks from Ireland. <laughs> um, definitely tells the story of, uh, of the cocktail culture history of, uh, of downtown New York. Very excited to have uh, Jack McGarry and uh, Sean Maldoon here on the show. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for, for being here today. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Thank you. Um, tell us a little bit about how, how you guys got together. How did you, uh, how did your, your, uh, partnership form? You want to take one? <laughs> um, so we both come from the same part of Belfast in Northern Ireland. And, um, I mean, I was doing cocktails for years and stuff like that. And I felt like it was the only person that was really interested in cocktails in that country. And, um, then I met Jack and I heard about Jack and, Everybody was telling me there's some kid that you got to go and check out. There's some kid you got to go and check out. So I went and checked him out, and he was very, very good. Um, I don't know what his major, he can probably tell you about this, but I don't know what really, really possessed him to get into cocktails in the very, very first place. Um, but when I seen him, I was very, very impressed, and we worked together in The Merchant in Belfast, and The Merchant was a, an award-winning cocktail bar. Um, they won many, many, like four tails of cocktail awards and a whole bunch of UK and Irish awards for a bar in Belfast wasn't wasn't bad. Like, yeah, one of the few European bars <coughs> to ever win those Tales of the Cocktail Awards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So congratulations for that. So that was that was me and Jack. Um, well, there was another bunch of people that were working with us, but it was me and Jack's vision, me and Jack's sort of like leadership. And an opportunity then came for us to come. One of our regular customers came to um, offered us a chance to come to New York. He thought we'd gone as far as we could possibly go in Belfast, and he said, "Would you people like you need to be in New York? It's where the challenge is. That's where the fight is." And 
if you're able to do the same thing in New York that you were able to do here, um, you'll get so much more opportunity. And that was four, four and a half years ago that he said that. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, uh, Jack, what was your uh, first inspiration for, for doing good cocktails, for, for diving into this? Basically, I was taking a. I was started to get in the bars when I was in school, um, and I took a. I took a year out, and I met a guy called uh, Kieran Breen. It was one of uh, Sean's former pupils, if you will, and he was. Uh, I was mucking around in different bars, but I started in this bar, and they got this guy in to do the cocktail program for them, and uh, I was very impressed with what he was doing, and then that's when I started hearing about Sean and what the program that he was running in the Merchant, and it was very intriguing to me because it was all these historical cocktails. And uh, it was something that I want to get into, so that's when I started doing competitions and approached Sean and said we like we wanted to come and work with him. And that's where it really all started. I just got I got got I fell in love with cocktails, and I've, I really haven't really looked back since. And notably, you had a 750 pound mai tai mm-hmm. at the Merchant uh, with the uh, original 17 year old J Ray and nephew rum that Victor J, which Trader Vic uh, used when he created the drink in 1944. How are you even able to, to source that bottle? It's amazing. It's a, it's a pretty long story. Um, we had a, on our first cocktail menu, we had a section, and it was called the Connoisseurs Club, and you could buy maybe a selection of maybe 12 classic cocktails, and you could upgrade the quality of the drink based on the quality of the spirit. You obviously paid more, but for the third level, so you would basically a, a silver, silver, gold, gold silver, silver, which was house level, House cocktail, and you had gold level, which is more expensive, and you had platinum, which was exorbitantly priced. Um, so we looked for the most expensive thing you could possibly put in. We were talking like a 1906 bourbon and stuff like that there for the old-fashioned type thing of, of the platinum level. And one thing we looked at was the Red Nephew 17-year-old. There just so happened to be... Um, <coughs> There was a wee bit of a, a tiki movement that was happening in London at the time, and there was a, a brand manager for Appleton called James Robinson, and the master distiller of uh, J. Brand Nephew back then, was, um, which is Appleton as well, they, she was called Joy Spence. She happened to be over in London at the Nottingham, Notting Hill Rum Festival, and he told her, due to the tiki movement and all that was happening in London at the time, would they ever recreate the Ray, or remake it, the Red Nephew, 17-year-old because of the Mai Tai, and uh, she said no, blah, 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 but she said that they'd done a worldwide inventory the previous year, and they had found some of that rum, and she said she would send him some, so he got a, a case delivered, I think it was about six months later, um, in total, they were able to find 12 bottles of this rum, and she sent six of them to the UK and told him specifically who four of the bottles had to go to, and was leaving him to make up his mind about the other two. It's, it sounds it sounds this it sounds absolutely hard to believe that this this but this is exactly how it happened, um, so the other two were sitting on his shelf, with no particular purpose. When I actually asked the question, and it wasn't me, it was somebody representing us. He asked the question, "Do you have any Ren nephew, or can you get Ren nephew seventeen old?" And he said, "How the hell does he know about that?" And he said, "I've actually got a bottle, and uh, it ended up we got it for free." Um, wow. We sold it at seven hundred fifty bucks a pop, and we how were, many of those actually sold? We sold them, but most of the bottle. Yeah. Wow! What can you explain the, the experience of drinking a seven hundred fifty dollar cost? I've never had anything like that, and I've always assumed that with um, a much more aged spirit, uh, the flavors become more delicate and more nuanced, and maybe in a cocktail form, you, you lose some of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would, I would jump at the opportunity to try this. It, it was abs- well. Obviously, it was the original rum used in the in the Mai Tai, and the reason reason for it was obviously the proof of it. 
I think it was 77, was it, percent? Yeah. And uh, wow. particularly in the Mai Tai, because of the, the, the modifiers, the sweetening agents, it really cut through that, and uh, it was absolutely beautiful in the, in, in the drink. But what happened when we originally opened it was fantastic, um, but we had it encased in, this, in, a, in a wooden box, which, on reflection, probably wasn't the best, best idea, because with the, it was taken on, like an, it was oxidizing, and it was starting to become more and more like a bourbon. So I think the last one we sold for half the price because the guy wanted to buy the last ever Mai Tai. Um, but originally it was absolutely amazing, and it was a hundred, like if you had that type of money, I suppose it's all relative, but definitely I would have paid for it if I had that type of money. But uh, at the end of its time, it probably wasn't, wasn't, wasn't worth it. Yeah, from, from opening the bottle to finishing the bottle was probably about a year, and that type of rum, that type of strength probably lost its real impact after mm-hmm. about three months of being open. Oh, wow. Okay, so it, it did begin to oxidize. Actually, just being in the bottle, it was, was stable until you pulled it out. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, I have very little experience with, with super old spirits yeah. like that. So that's super interesting. So uh, take us back to that time when, uh, when your patron said, would love to open up a, a bar with you. Was it specific, do you say specifically in New York? Or they say, you know, there, there's a bunch of great cocktail cities now around the world. Well, he, he thought London or New York. Um, the thing is, he had traveled quite a bit he worked for the stock exchange at the time he was pretty senior in the stock exchange the New York stock exchange and he um, had seen all these bars that we sent him to and he was going all over the world he was going to Japan he was going to San Francisco and we told him to go here go here and he was seeing all these bars and he thought I'm going to see all these bars and what those guys doing is better than what any of these guys are doing they're sending me to and he actually thought right they're sending me to these bars but they're actually better and so he thought you need to be in London or New York and and what was it about New York well, he lived in New York um, five weeks out of every six. The one week that he was back in Belfast was the week that he was in our bar drinking. Um, but he, uh, he worked for the stock exchange, and he lived in the financial district. And he, to him, obviously, if he was going to invest, he wanted it to be somewhere where he was going to be near it. You know, He didn't want it to be in London where he wasn't going to be near it. So New York, to him, was the, the most uh, obvious choice. And he thought that there's so many like-minded people. There's so many people like you and Jack out in New York, and you will meet your match. In, in uh, Belfast, like, for example, there's no competition. There's, but in New York, it really does separate the men from the boys. So he really did believe that you go over there and you're able to do what you did in Belfast, and you'll get so much more opportunity. And how was that transition for you guys? Uh, not only the move, but opening up a new business. It's, uh, I've, I've opened up businesses in New York, and the, the city doesn't always make it too easy for you. Uh, what what was that like? It was incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, Sean came out first, and he left his uh, his two kids and a, and a wife back back in uh, back in Belfast, and wow. all our fr- like left all our friends. We left absolutely everything in Belfast, um, and then through time, like the, the, our partners came over, and things got a bit easier. But opening the Dead Rabbit, obviously, I'm a bit younger than Sean, but. I hope I don't have a challenge uh, the one that we faced with opening Dead Rabbit because it was absolutely monumental um, and it took it, t- it really did take everything out of us so I'm, I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad we got it open it, was, it wasn't necessarily like construction red tape anything like that it was the whole process we had to find a location like when we came here we had an investor that was prepared to g- give, pay money like, but we had to he didn't want to have bars so we had to literally find everything out from scratch we had to talk to friends we had to form relationships with people we had to come up with a concept I mean there was nothing for, it was, you literally had one guy saying I'll make it possible for you to get into the country and I will make it possible for you to open a bar that's all you had but everything else was up to you 
Wow. And then win the trust of investors, all this type of stuff. It was just there was so many things that we had to, to do when we came here, but it, uh, it ended up uh, it really everything kind of happened for us. Yeah, it's a monumental uh, challenge to open up a, a, a bar, a business in New York City, much less a world class cocktail bar, much less uh, combine that with, with a move to a, a new place that, that's foreign. Uh, Really impressive, guys. <laughs> really, really impressive. Uh, how did you... Um, so the Dead Rabbit attempts to embody the conviviality of old New York. Mm-hmm. How did you decide on, on this theme? Um, what, what made you think of, of this as, as the reason for it? Well, we had... Uh, we had uh, as I said earlier, we had a, a section on our drinks menu called the Connoisseur's Club. Our general manager of the hotel, the merchant, said that we should actually have a club a connoisseur's club where people would come and taste spirits and taste cocktails and we could get speakers in and stuff like that and his whole idea was to get the master distiller of Bushmills distillery down and let him talk about Irish whiskey or something like that we we started off with that it was all like local people like local brand ambassadors people from the UK people it was easy people for us to get friends of ours that were working for drinks companies and stuff like that and then um, we went for Tales of the Cocktail and uh, it was I think this was 2008 we lost all three and uh, um, we worked for three awards and we lost all three and I contacted a couple of months later I contacted uh, Simon Difford who was the adjudicator and I asked him like just tell me because he was one of the guys we'd had over to speak at the Connoisseurs Club and I said tell me where we went wrong tell me because I want to be ready for next year and blah 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 and he said listen the thing about Belfast is nobody goes to Belfast he said these judges do not go to Belfast he says um, You've, you've got to literally bring those judges to Belfast to see your bar, or you've got to bring your bar to see the judges. He says, whatever way you've got to do it, but they have got to see your bar. They've got to experience your bar. And he said to me that one of the best things to do would be through that connoisseurs club that we had. Mm-hmm. We had a, a different brand ambassador every month. He said, do it every couple of months and get somebody from America over. Look at who the judges are and get them over. And that's who you want to go to your bar, not, not local brand ambassadors. So we did that, and we invested a hell of a lot more money. We got all these big judges over. And we won the three tails of the cocktails the following year um, because we, we did exactly his, his, what his advice was. But the thing we noticed when we got all these Americans over and when we got all these people over was um, the people that came to see them and they themselves, they hung out in our bar. That's what we wanted to do. We wanted them to blow away with our hospitality, show them all about what we were about. We wanted to do that, but most of the time they spent uh, drinking in a, in a pub up the street called the Duke of York. And it was a pub, literally a working man's pub, no frills, very down to earth, all beer and Irish whiskey, <clears throat> and very, very Irish, a very, very Irish bar, and they absolutely loved this place. And when it was put to me and Jack about uh, coming up with a, a cocktail concept that was going to be completely different, we thought about the bar we worked in, which was The Merchant, and we thought about the Irish whiskey bar where everybody drank. And we thought, like, if we're going to do it, um, we're going to put both of those elements together in the same place and make it make sense. So we started looking through history, um, because we knew we were coming to New York. We were looking at New York history, Irish cocktail connection. We knew Jerry Thomas wrote the first ever cocktail book in 1862. And there was a whole influx of Irish immigrants in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. And we thought, right, we have an area, we have a whole... And then we, we come up with an idea, the Dead Rabbit. But the whole idea was... The whole idea behind it was to literally bring the pub that we drank in and all those guys drank in together with the sophisticated and cocktails and make it very, very approachable for everybody. That's, yeah. that's where it all mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you guys haven't been, downstairs is that more casual pub. Upstairs is the, the more elegant, the merchant, the, merchant, the <laughs> elegant bar. I mean, last time I was there, there was uh, beautiful live jazzy music being played. Uh, the the 
uh, the glasses are stunning. The cocktails are beautiful. Downstairs a little bit more raucous, and you know it's fine. We have you have a lot of fans of the Dead Rabbit uh, at our restaurants, especially at Lartuzzi, and uh, I feel like it's divided. Some people prefer downstairs. <laughs> some people prefer the upstairs. And uh, they all have their good reasons, all their good reasons why. Um, but it, I, I definitely, uh, I, oh man, I, I love them both. Uh, but for me, I'm more of a, the upstairs kind of guy. I, I like the just to sit, sit back, sip, relax, enjoy an expertly made cocktail. Um, all right, we're going to take a, uh, a quick break, uh, but we'll be back uh, with the proprietors from The Dead Rabbit in just a little bit. song is called Dirty Hands by Eula. This is In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Michter's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost be damned, taste is everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. All right, guys. Welcome back. We're, uh, we're here with the, uh, the guys Jack and Sean from uh, The Dead Rabbit, one of the best cocktail bars not only in New York City but certainly in, uh, in the world. Uh, <laughs> and that's not by me because I certainly have not been to, uh, to every cocktail bar in the world, but uh, that is the consensus amongst, <laughs> amongst, people, uh, amongst those in the know. Uh, anyway, uh, I wanted to ask you about your series that you guys have been doing with Dave Wondrich. Um, it is a, uh, I believe, a six-part series to to get started with. I have each one of them in my calendar, and as soon as I have a night where I'm not working, uh, and and hopefully for me it's not sold out yet, um, I'm I'm going to be uh, attending. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, of Dave's. I've I've read his book and by multiple times, and I feel like every time I read it, I I learned something that I missed the first time. But how did, how did this how did this start? Uh, the series start. 
Uh, he basically contacted me and Sean and, and said, do you want to meet up in uh, McSorley's for a beer? Um, so <laughs> we went to McSorley's and had a beer and he put this ideas, idea to us. They run a they run a like a series uh, highlighting bartenders and, and trends and stuff of the 19th century, um, and he sent us through the email with what he was thinking of talking about. So he was going to talk about all everything that was happening. So the last one we done was about the life of Jerry Thomas. So he would talk about Jerry Thomas and make a few of his, of his drinks the way they originally were made, and then I would make my interpretations of them, um, particularly focus on Irish whiskey. Um, so that was basically the idea, um, and we would invite, we would get people, we would sell it. It would be a ticketed, ticketed event, and the last, the last few have went really well. It's very, uh, it's a very intellectual series. Listening to Dave, it's, it's, it's it is like listening to a, a professor, um, but it's fun. It's 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 very very engrossing, um, and I would recommend that anybody who has a an interest in cocktails, um, it's definitely it's a fantastic series to go to. Yeah, and very reasonably priced. I remember. Yeah, what is it? Thirty. 50. 50. 50 yeah, it's still still but you're getting uh you're getting s- like two f- two full cocktails and f- I think it's four halves yeah. and then we put on a bit of food and then you listen l- listen to Dave alone is is worth 50 bucks so that's yeah. uh, I, 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 c- I couldn't agree more and uh you're definitely going to see me at, at one of these coming up um so so Dave's very much into uh cocktail history especially 19th century cocktail mm-hmm. history your cocktail menu uh really tells the story of the leader of the Dead Rabbits gang, um, and there's a lot of history mm-hmm. that that went into your menu. How important is uh, is is history and accuracy to you? How much have you had to change to adapt to either what we have available today or to our our 21st century tastes? Um, the the main thing with all of our menus is we like to tell a story. Um, and every story that we try to tell, we try to make it accessible for the the 21st century consumer. Um, but we we want it to be unique and different. We don't we don't like doing anything that we've already done. So the first menu it was very much about telling the story of uh like of the initiation of Manhattan to the time of the Dead Rabbits, and it was all about 17th, 18th, and 19th century cocktails. And obviously the second menu was all about John Morrissey and uh, Irish whiskey. And we're, we've just started beginning uh, beginning work with our with our third our third and final. Uh, menu in terms of like the big the big story menus um but when we're re- when we're creating drinks the emphasis originally was definitely on on historical drinks and i wanted things to be as historically accurate as possible and it drove both of both of us mad to be honest but now the drinks are i'd say they're starting to become a bit more modern utilizing a lot more uh like 21st century flavor mm-hmm. combinations and stuff like that but our whole ethos is definitely historical because i don't really believe that you can kind of start interpreting the future if you don't have a core understanding of the past. What's something that we wouldn't necessarily think about um, when it comes to reading an old cocktail recipe and Mm -hmm. translating it for the new? I know our eggs are maybe a little bit bigger than Mm -hmm. they used to be. Our sugar's more refined. What what else is is something that that maybe, you know, that in your research that you've you've come across? I mean, so a lot of bartenders, when they look at recipes, they'll just look at it and then they'll try to make it as similar to that idea as possible. I don't think like that at all. Um, when we were in the merchant, basically the way I, the way Sean kind of instilled in me was just make things and make it until it tastes great. Um, so when I look at a recipe, I'm looking at the core flavor breakdown and how I can make that work and give it the best representation. Um, but if you're talking about big differences from historical uh, standpoint to now, like things like distillation and, and aging, these were things that happened really in the 1800s um, and really started people started to know about it and 
uh, that type of stuff. So the liquor that they had back in those days wouldn't have been nowhere near as good as what we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the same type of idea as Prohibition. Like they, they tried to mask the flavour of uh, of alcohol back in those days. But like you've got Aquavita, which is a water life. It was also known as Aquamortis, the water of death. Um, and that's the reason why Punch was invented. It was really to kind of mask a lot of these flavours. Um, and But today... I think you really have to taste, taste your alcohol in cocktails or else there, there, there's no point. So I th- I'd say that's the, the kind of main difference is the liquor mm-hmm. that we have today is so, so like it's superior to what they had back in those days. And talking about uh, liquors that are, that are getting better and better, uh, tell us a little bit about, about Irish whiskey. I know that that's something you've been, mm-hmm. you've been focusing on and probably something that, uh, that a lot of Americans aren't, aren't too familiar with, uh, high-quality Irish whiskey. What's, what's the scene of Irish whiskey right now? What's going on? Um, it originally goes back to the, te- like the Duke of York, to be honest with you. We wanted the, this bar, the Duke of York, has a massive Irish whiskey collection. And I'll be even more honest in saying me and Sean didn't know a lot about Irish whiskey when we came to America. It was just... From a conceptual point of view, we ha- it had to be a part of, of the of the tap room, um, but we had this moment. We were in a, a cocktail bar in, Br- in Brooklyn, um, and this guy had an unbelievable collection of scotches and all these fancy amaros and Odevis. Um And we asked him, "Did he have any Irish whiskey?" And he said he didn't have any Irish whiskey. So Sean asked him, "So you caught your cocktail bar? Like, what if somebody orders an Irish coffee?" And the guy said, uh, "We use bourbon." Um, so when we heard that, what was like, right, we kind of need to start, because we were aware that we have a unique stage, um, and, and people, some people listen to us, um, so we wanted to really focus on Irish whiskey, so with the second menu, we uh, dedicated half of our, of our offering to Irish whiskey, um, and we also started really building our Irish whiskey collection downstairs, so we have 100 and, what, 132 at the minute? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the cocktail menu upstairs is all about showcasing the versatility of the category. So we have three main styles of Irish whiskey, with blends, malt whiskies, and pot, whis- pot still whiskies. And the one that we're particularly proud of is the pot still Irish whiskey. So it was a style of whiskey that was very, very popular in America in the 19th century. And it's really starting to come back now. And it's it's basically a blend of malted and unmalted barley. And it's, it's, a, it's very creamy... Lots of spice. You've got a lot of honey notes in there, and it's as a category we we both really see as a key part of the, the cocktail industry moving forward. Um, and there really is like there's a lot more of them starting to come out. So you've got the Pars expressions, red breast, um, and and the green spots and the yellow spots, which are starting to come through. So mm-hmm. it's a very exciting time. And there was a time that Ireland was down to only about three distilleries, right? Is it? Have, have a, new was, distilleries opened up recently? Yeah, there was a time when there was two. Two. Um, before uh, Cooley started distilling in 1989, there was only, there was only two main, main, uh, main distilleries, which would be Bushmills and uh, Middleton. Um, but now we have, uh, I'd say by the beginning or middle of next year, we'll have around about 10 or 11. Um, so distilling right now, you have Bushmills, Middleton, Altec, which so a lot of these guys are small in comparison. Altec, uh, Dingle, you have uh, Tullamore, which has started distilling this week. Um, Kilbegan, Cooley so you have about 6 or 7 at the minute they're still in and then there's plans there's going to be 2 more opening in Dublin um, at the, be- the beginning the middle of next year um, which is fantastic because it's restoring the kind of dist- like Irish whiskey tradition in Dublin um, and then you have a couple of other guys but uh, it'll be interesting to see how it goes for sure um, It's exciting things going on with Irish whiskey yeah, it sounds big like time, but uh, we're aware that only the big guys are going to su- survive like Tullamore have William Grant behind them so they're going to be fine Tailings have the injection of uh, the, the beam seal because they sold their Cooley distillery for about 100 million so they have that so they're going to be fine 
but a lot of the smaller guys will see how they get on because it's it's not only they have to open the distillery and put all this whiskey away for four or five years before they can start selling it so it'll be interesting to see how it goes yeah i wonder if they'll do some of the things that you see with with new york Mm -hmm. distilleries with either releasing an unaged spirit and not calling it bourbon that we might say here or or coming up with ways to release the minimum even if it's not necessarily the the best yeah we're already starting to see it so it'll be interesting to see who survives Uh, well, I wish the Irish whiskey industry the best, uh, <laughs> the best especially the small guys. Um, so with 132 Irish whiskeys, that's a ton. But I think it's even more impressive in a way that you have over 70 different cocktails on your list mm-hmm. at a time. How do, you, how do you tend to guide your guests into uh, which cocktails to drink? And, and how much training does it take for, for your bartending staff to, to stay up to date with, with both this huge spirit mm-hmm. selection, but especially creating consistent high quality cocktails with mm-hmm. with such a, a huge array that seems like a huge uh, amount of work yeah it's training 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 to be honest with you. um we both come from a background where we're constantly trying to better ourselves um and a background and and particularly in the merchant that we're, we were all about training and kind of empowering our staff so it's something that we've really really taken on to be honest the first year we really focused on getting everything right um Getting, making sure like we had the the clientele if you don't have if you don't have cu- customers or, or guests like there's no point in like all the, the the smaller things there's no point in worrying about so it was just focusing on making sure we were doing everything that we were we came here to do 100 percent correctly but now we're all about education development like keeping things um that 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 one step better so we've uh we've spent an awful lot of time training um and the key to a large menu really is the like the staff behind are, are behind you and delivering it um and also from before that is making sure that the menu works like when you give it to a customer like it works in every type of scenario so we have this thing where we have an insert menu so it breaks it breaks the menu before you like before you even go into it because some people don't want to read a, like a book of cocktails they just want to be able to order a cocktail pretty quickly um but for the people who do want to order you've got to make it it's got to be accessible so mm-hmm. when we give it to the like I'm sure you've been upstairs you, you got to explain that here's the different categories go with the, the category that suits you best and, and order from that category and it's very very easy to interpret um, but the staff have to be well trained so we do, we, we do trainings every every month and we're doing tests and all this type of stuff so it's it's all it's all about education huge, huge endeavor and now you have uh, Jillian working with mm-hmm. you as well uh, Jillian Vos I yeah. think uh, one of the most talented uh, bartenders mm-hmm. in the city. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and not only do you guys nail the uh, the the quality of of your spirits and, and cocktails offering, and the place is absolutely beautiful. But I've also found that that the hospitality is is top notch as mm-hmm. well. Um, we we got really well taken care of, uh, and I I love I absolutely love this gesture of offering uh, a little a little teacup of punch to start before anyone even orders a, a drink. There's mm-hmm. a little uh, teacup to, of, of punch. Uh, it's this great gesture of hospitality. How do, how do you think that that defines the hospitality that, that you're trying to, to embody in the bar? I think f- from both of us, we've, we've visited cocktail bars all over the planet. Um, and there's an awful lot of, there is an awful lot of great ones, but there, there was a lot of pretense when, when, when we felt we went to some bars and it was something we were keen to get rid of. Um, don't get me wrong, when I was a younger bartender, I was, well, I was like serious as a heart attack um, type of bartender and all I thought about was a drink. But with Dead Rabbit, we wanted to have a, we wanted to make amazing cocktails, but we wanted the, the environment to be very relaxed, comfortable, um, totally unpretentious. And, and I think things like the teacup, 
the personalities that we have on the floor. Oh, oh, don't get me wrong, like cocktail bartenders are cocktail bartenders, so there's only so much personality that you can get out of a cocktail bartender because they're focused on cocktails. Um, but what we've done downstairs, I thought, was very clever with, with the types of personalities that we have behind the bar. Um, like the like Sean can, can talk about the diversity of the personalities that we have down there, like with girls from Alabama, with guys like pure New Yorkers, with like people just from every type of... Uh, Every type of walk walk of life, um, and that's basically what it's all about. The key, the key thing for Dead Rabbit is the hospitality, um, and there's no egos. The team, the team is important. Nobody's bigger than the team, um, and I think that the whole staff have brought brought into that. All right, and Sean, maybe you can answer this this last one. Um, la- last question: You guys have uh, exciting news that uh, you have a book coming out in 2015. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? It's going to be a cocktail guide, a history, memoir. How did this all come to be? Um, again, it goes back to what the investor who brought us from Belfast to New York said. He said, uh, if you're able to do the same thing in New York that you did in Belfast, you'll get so much more opportunity. Um, so we got this opportunity last year. Um, a, pu- a publisher came knocking on our door and basically said he was interested in doing a book. And that is something that does not happen in Belfast at all, ever, in a million billion years. You do not get that opportunity. And that's what this guy meant when he said you get better opportunities. So, yes, um, it seems that the way the book is unfolding, it's going to be a lot of the drinks we did upstairs in our first year of opening. The um, the, the drinks, the, the menu that won the World's Best Award at uh, Tools of the Cocktail. So a lot of it's going to be the drinks from that menu, the hardbound menu, and the insert menus throughout the course of that entire year. And then there's going to be the whole story of me and Jack when we when we came here and, and opening the Dead Rabbit and the sort of hardships we went through. Um, so it's it's going to be basically what it took to get the Dead Rabbit where it is. And some of those beautiful illustrations as well. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I can't wait for it to come out. I can't wait for my next visit to the Dead Rabbit. And uh, as I said, I have the, the Dave Wondrich series in my in my calendar. And as soon as I have a night off, that 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 corresponds to, I will be there. And I encourage all of you to go as well. Um, if you're if you're one of the few people who hasn't yet been to the Dead Rabbit, it is uh, certainly one of the, one of my favorite cocktail places uh, I've ever been to anywhere. That's not an overstatement. You guys are absolutely killing it. I'm stoked that you are on the show today. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having thank us. You. Thank, thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>